Domestic violence remains widespread in many countries. Approximately one third of women globally experience some form of violence in their lifetime. In this month's episode of Between the Lines, IDS fellow Sahela Naznin discusses a book that she's co-edited entitled Negotiating Gender Equity in the Global South, The Politics of Domestic Violence Policy. The book investigates the conditions under which countries in sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia have adopted legislation against domestic violence. And as Sahela explains how broader domains of power need to be addressed if we're to have gender-inclusive policy outcomes. Interviewing Sahela is economist and gender specialist Professor Diane Elson. So Sahela, you've investigated how a new law on domestic violence was passed in Bangladesh in 2010, and now you've co-edited a book on domestic violence policymaking with case studies of a number of countries in sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. How widespread a problem is domestic violence? Um, Domestic violence is one of the key issues that women face all around the world. About one third of women experience uh, violence at some point in their lives in the world. So that is that gives you the magnitude of the issue and why states need to be responding and addressing uh, this problem. And it's interesting, you found in these these countries, Rwanda, Uganda, South Africa, India, Bangladesh, Ghana, You found there had been some movement, that there was a a new law on domestic violence. How did that come about? So the six countries that you mentioned, um, basically the law came about at different points of time. South Africa passed it first in the late 90s, but then all the other countries that we look at, um, India, Ghana, um, Bangladesh, uh, Rwanda, and in the last decade, a lot of states passed this law. And it's quite interesting to look at the policy process to see what pushed the states to adopt this. Among the six countries, what we see is the speed of adoption varies and the content of the law in terms of what it covers varies. And um, what got us interested is to look at why that variation exists and what was the role of women's rights groups, what other factors affected their ability to push their agenda. For example, if uh, there were powerful politicians who supported this, how did the ruling elite look at the issue, what motivated their action, what were the donors doing, Uh, what was the transnational feminist activists doing, how did they frame the idea, who resisted this sort of adoption, particularly resistance coming from religious groups. And all these factors varied depending on the kind of political uh, system you were in. So all of these are democracies, all these six countries. But it is not about whether you're a democracy or whether you're an authoritarian regime. It is about within the political system, how are you placed? What is the nature of contestation and balance of power between the different actors? So, for example, in Uganda and Rwanda, these are dominant party states, as political scientists would call it. But what it means is that one party has a lot of influence in the electoral system uh, and also in how the government is run. So what that means is that you need to have the president and that party on board to get your agenda past. Um, if you're in a system which what we call competitive clientelist, which in simple words is that there is competition among different groups to get attention of the ruling elites like Ghana or Bangladesh, then 
women's rights groups and their issues are one of the issues that the ruling elites would address. So how do you get their attention? And if your issue is something that would be electorally costly or costly in other terms, then would they pick up their issue? So your strategy kind of needs to, to vary and you need to sort of play the game differently and you need to be savvy about that. So this is about looking at those, opening up that black box of policy process and seeing who matters in what context, what strategies do you need to deploy, both in terms of framing your demand, but also in terms of getting which actors on board, uh, diffusing the opposition, um, and then also understanding what are the different informal relations and networks that exist between these actors and how, how are these deployed by the women's rights groups to forward their agenda. So I imagine in all of these countries, there were women's organizations who were pressing uh, for a new law on domestic violence. Is that, is that correct? Yes, absolutely, Diane. Women's rights organizations were the ones who have been providing legal aid to the survivors of domestic violence. They started a long time back in each of these countries. And uh, it's that experience of that which led them to realize that the existing law that addresses violence against women don't necessarily cover domestic violence adequately because domestic violence is not something that you can just address through having a criminal law and punishing the perpetrator because the situation is quite different. You need to think about other civil measures. You need to think about health care for the survivors. You need to think about shelters. You need to think about um, sort of how do women recover their assets that were that they had acquired during marriage. So there are different layers and dimensions to it and you need the different departments to work together. So it's from that experience that women's rights organization in these countries have been pushing for this and they have been critical to sort of stick with the agenda year after year till the political opportunity arose to push for it. And who were their allies in this? So the allies uh, varied in terms of uh, the, their nature and sort of what kind of assistance or what, how they came on board. So when, when the women's rights organizations formed a coalition, a policy coalition for changing the law or drafting a law against domestic violence, uh, it was the human rights organizations. Uh, it was uh, sort of organizations that work on the rights of homosexuals. Um, it was also children's rights organizations who directly came on board to be a part of the coalition. Now, just to emphasize that not in all countries could uh, groups working on gay rights come openly on board, depending on which country it is. But uh, the coalition in most of the countries tried to incorporate them because when domestic violence happens, it's not just between husband and a wife. It's not intimate partner violence. It covers many different types of domestic relations. Um, you had other forms of allies in terms of people inside the state. So you had, for example, the women's people working in the women's ministry or people working in law ministry, sort of helping the coalition out in terms of drafting the law. So powerful insiders were very, very important. But you also had um, sort of allies in the form form of donors. I mean, donors didn't play a major role in terms of pushing the agenda, but they had funded small project and they played a role behind the scenes. The reason why they were not up front 
pushing the issue other than uh, in Rwanda is partly you don't want the agenda to be cat- characterized as it is a Western agenda. You want the want the agenda to be framed as this is an issue that a nation needs to address because you want to advance and you want your women to be secured. And um, you, this is something that that is an important issue to address and not something that's being pushed from outside. And did it make a difference how many women there were in parliament, for instance? So it, this is where it gets interesting because the, among the six countries, uh, the representation of women varied. Obviously, in Rwanda, it's very high because of the quotas. In Uganda, you also have quite a high number. In Bangladesh, also because of quotas, you do. In India, it's small. In South Africa, you have a higher representation. In Ghana, it's very, very small. Um so it's not always the women parliamentarians, even though it is a, you're drafting a law and pushing a law, that matters. What matters is the linkage that women's rights organizations have with women parliamentarians and also with uh, powerful women inside the state. So, for example, in Bangladesh's case, uh, the link with the prime minister and the women's minister um, that the policy coalition on domestic violence had played a pivotal role. In Uganda, the link between the policy coalition and the women parliamentarians became very important because that's how you sort of diffuse the resistance from the male MPs when the law was being discussed. So it's these linkages that you have become quite important. And and in that sense, then, women in powerful positions um, do matter. I mean, a lot of the time we question that, okay, you have a woman prime minister or you have have that many women parliamentarians. How, How does it matter or do powerful women matter? Powerful women matter in a big way because if you're not at the table, you can't push for anything. Mm-hmm. So the the women's organisations outside Parliament and the political sphere need a conduit within Parliament, within the executive that's going to be responsive to to this issue of domestic violence. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. And you mentioned resistance, for instance, in the case of Uganda. Were the resistance is in other countries as well, and where does it come from? The resistance. So, very interestingly, um, by the last decade, domestic violence was being seen as, oh, this is not something that that should happen. Um, so, so it's not that people would sort of completely want to come out and say, oh, this is okay. But the resistance was more around what would be the content of the law. So, for example, will you address marital rape? Will you, if you give women a right to residence for the marital home, then does that mean that she would have uh, ownership of the house? You know, so resistance around certain clauses and, and the content of the law. A lot of resistance around how you defined the family. So are you going to cover cohabiting couples? So that became an issue for India and Bangladesh, because obviously in these countries you have to be married. Um, Marriage is universal in a way. So it's sort of what would be the political cost of addressing these issues, which is where the resistance was sort of coming from. And a lot of the resistance also came from um, male MPs in the case of Uganda, but also male MPs in in Ghana. also in India, which took a, which was a protracted kind of negotiation, sort of uh, the discussion around uh, sort of family values. And if you pass this law, would that give women more power and reduce power of the men? Um, there was a lot of discussion 
or pushback from the men and also from the church in the case of Ghana and also in, in Uganda. Um, and uh, sort of the Islamist groups, uh, they weren't actively resisting the law in Bangladesh because they were distracted by other political things that were happening. But uh, the framers of the law were t still taking them on board because if those would become political issues, they had to sort of frame issues in a particular way that wouldn't give offense to these groups. So there was a lot of negotiations around how do you frame the idea of domestic violence. So, a so for example, it was linked to that this is a development issue partly because it affects women's ability to work, it affects their health, um, that this is, a, this is an issue, for example, in Rwanda, how it was framed was that we are a modern nation and in a modern nation, you don't do this and this is part of our vision. And in the genocide, there was so much high levels of gender-based violence that this is a form of violence that we don't want to have in, our, in, in the nation that we are trying to build. So there, there were different ways of framing the agenda to, to diffuse the resistance, but there was definitely resistance. But nevertheless, the resistance was overcome or, or were important um, compromises made along the way, which mean that the law was not as, uh, as, as perhaps effective as it might otherwise have been. So, yes, um, I mean, different countries made different types of compromises depending on the political situation and what was your opportunity and what you could get away with. So, for example, in Bangladesh, initially the definition of the family was quite broad. And also in Bangladesh, you gave women the right to residence, which is still in the law. But there is a loophole in the law in terms of if the husband divorces the wife while this contestation is going on, then obviously she loses any claim to the marital home because the relationship doesn't exist. Um, so there are there were those kind of loopholes. Uh, what we saw in Ghana was also very interesting because in Ghana, the coalition went with the rights-based framework and didn't want to budge from it. And that took a, it took a long time to get the law passed. Um, in almost all the countries, uh, marital rape was not explicitly recognized um, other than Rwanda. I mean, so you could see where things were, the law was diluted or where you needed to sort of let certain things go or sort of accept that trade-off because you wanted to move forward with the agenda. Mm. So having got a new law, despite having to make compromises of various kinds, nevertheless, they were successful in getting new laws in these countries. How about implementation? What did you find about, out about how far the law was being implemented? So our book covers up till 2016 period. So the thing can be a bit different, the situation now. What we found was in terms of setting up one-stop crisis centers and then sort of training judges and police and sort of rolling it out, uh, Rwanda was the most effective and then with other countries following behind. But we also have to take into account that the law was passed at different times in different countries, so obviously rolling it out will, will take time. But having said that, nevertheless, um, if we look at Ghana, Uganda, Bangladesh, um, um, also some parts of India, because India varies according to state, um, that it 
it depends on how many one-stop crisis centers you have, how the percentages of judges and police being trained, um, awareness about the law, and also the uptake of the law and the use of the law. And uh, in that sense, then, if you say, um, given that it was... It, it was a victory in terms of getting this law through, given the nature of resistance, given the long, long struggle that you ha had to sort of undertake to get the law passed. That implementation picture isn't that rosy. There's much to be wanted. And there are many different reasons for that. So one is, of course, how do you coordinate? Because you have to coordinate different departments. You have to coordinate between the Department of Health, social welfare, criminal justice system, because domestic violence isn't just a criminal law. Uh, it also includes the civil dimension. So you need that coordination. So how is that coordination happening? happening. There's the issue about budgets. Uh, Ministry of Finance is in charge of the budget. Domestic violence is an important issue, but they have also other things to fund. So what is the nature of the federal budget and also then budgets at the local level? You have issues around capacity. So you can train the police and the judges on the law, but then how do they effectively implement that is a different issue because this is where the cultural mindset comes in. How do they look at um, domestic violence and how do they look at what are the entitlements of women or children or men who are being affected by domestic violence and what do they think is that they would do. So there are the technical fixes and the guidelines and then there are sort of the informal practices that you then engage in in terms of delivery of, of services. And also the other bit is that you have women's rights organization at the national level forming a coalition for the adoption of the law. But when it gets implemented, it gets implemented at the local level. So what's the capacity of the coalition to be present and to monitor and watch sort of be a watchdog? But also what's the role of, of the national parliament in raising questions and holding the bureaucracy to account in terms of what have they done around this issue? And we all know that... Well, addressing domestic violence effectively doesn't necessarily win new elections because women don't vote as a block or it doesn't come up as a major electoral issue. So then the 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 question here is that who's watching out for if, for this law being implemented? If you don't do it, then are you being sanctioned or called to account? And then there's the issue about shifting the mind frame and, and sort of the cult cultural aspects that service providers have. Mm -hmm. So we are in, in for a long struggle, but let's hope that we win that. Yes. So were there any surprises in this uh, cross-country comparison that you undertook? Yes. Um, the first surprise was methodologically, this book was quite innovative in a sense that we paired up the countries to see which factors matter for gender progressive laws to be passed. So Rwanda and Uganda were paired up, Ghana and Bangladesh were paired up, and India and South Africa were paired up. And as I said, it's not about whether a country is uh, democratic or not. It's about what is the balance of power between different actors who are either for this or against this, and how, does, how do women's rights organizations then use uh, sort of analyze the situation and, and, and are strategic about using certain opportunities. But having said that, even when I was setting it up and pairing up the, pairing the countries as, a, as pairs, I wasn't sure that I would find similarities. But what is astounding is sort of the similarities that 
exists between Ghana is in sub-Saharan Africa and Bangladesh is in South Asia. And sort of the issues that women's rights organizations faced and what kind of strategies they needed to be de deployed in that particular nature of political configuration, that came as a, as a big surprise. The second surprise was uh, we talk a lot about transnational actors and a lot of the time in development we focus on what are the donors doing or we look at international conventions, for example, the CEDO, influence of that, how do we frame our demands. But for us, what was very interesting was the South-South learning and exchange. So, for example, what Bangladesh learned from India and Malaysia in terms of framing the law or what Rwanda learned from South Africa, you know, it, it's that exchange between the regional feminists that became quite important in terms of how you frame a law in the regional context, how you make it appeal to wider public, how do you make, how do you translate that, that, that became quite quite important, which is an aspect that we don't normally look at in development studies, and I think we need to look at more. And the last thing that we knew would be important, but we just didn't know how important it would be, is sort of the informal networks and relations that women's rights organization had. So in the governance uh, literature and sort of in gov uh, sort of when we discuss uh, sort of women in politics, a lot of the time we talk about informal networks and networking works against women because women aren't part of old boys networks. What we forget is once women are in powerful positions and in politics, that they develop their own networks and they have, they have their ways of uh, sort of getting access to spaces. And in all our case studies, it's the links between women's rights organizations, their leaders, and links with the women's uh, minister or links with the gender ministry, sort of the secretary of the gender ministry, or other powerful insiders, uh, their male allies. It mattered. Uh, the personal dimension does matter. So then that kind of surprise raises uh, an a a big question around this informal network and networking is that if that is one of the critical factors that pushes certain agenda, are there agendas where it won't work if it is politically costly? So domestic violence, nobody is going to condone that. But if you want change in inheritance law, will these informal strategies work? Mm -hmm. Uh, because we all know that women's rights organization, I mean, in some countries, they may be present in larger numbers. In the countries that I looked at, uh, compared to other kind of trade unions and other groups, they're not the, the largest. So you don't have the strength of numbers or the strength of disrupting the system. So you have the power of ideas to sort of say what change should look like and convince them. And you have the power in terms of using these informal strategies and getting into policy spaces. So if there is a pushback around particular issues, will these strengths then work? So that is something to, to think about. Mm. So they work, these informal networks that you've shown in your book are so important um, because in a way there was already the idea that it's a bit shameful if we have this domestic violence and we don't have any measures to try and combat it. I was interested, you said in Rwanda, it was seen as we're a modern country now and <laughs> having domestic violence is, is not something that we, uh, we want to see and therefore it's part of our push for modernity that we have <laughs> a law against domestic violence. But you're saying that in relation to inheritance rights, it's not the same. There's no not a big consensus that changing and strengthening women's inheritance rights is 
is an important thing to do. So you can go to international meetings and say how good you're being and addressing women's rights. So mm-hmm. that that you 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 think that's much more diff- going to be much more difficult. Yes. So depending on what kind of policy change you're wanting, then your strategies would vary. But certain strategies that may work for one type of change may not necessarily work. So you need to take that into account. So uh, for Rwanda, obviously they passed the domestic violence, but they passed the inheritance law even before because in Rwanda, before the 1994 genocide, women couldn't inherit anything mm-hmm. and they had to change it partly because they needed the society to eco- economically function. But that's not going to be the situation in every country. And in every single country around inheritance, you see difficulties in, in changing the law. So India has had reformed its Hindu code, but not for other religions. Uh, women are belonging to other religions in Bangladesh. It has been a contentious issue. So depending on the policy issue, then it becomes difficult. And for certain policy issues, it may appear as a quick win for the political elites and for the women's organization to negotiate around that. So, for example, when domestic violence became really shameful that your country is not addressing it, you could push it. But equal inheritance hasn't gotten to that level and the economic interest of of people who benefit from women not inheriting equally is is a much more steeper and a bigger challenge. So depending on the issue, yes. Interesting that you mentioned economic interest. Is it because there's nobody with a strong economic interest economic interest in perpetuating domestic violence? That it's easier to change the law on that. I guess so, because domestic violence doesn't necessarily yield any rent for when you're uh, sort of implementing it. It doesn't allow it doesn't necessarily allow you to distribute patronage if you're sort of addressing it effectively or to maintain domestic violence. It doesn't economically benefit anybody. So it's probably easier to push through that kind of reform in that way. The main challenge is you're challenging cultural norms or male male power. But these days, it's very difficult to justify that kind of male power, even though cultural, I mean, practices at the local level may vary, but it's still, it's got difficult for people to justify domestic violence. And so does that mean there's a tacit resistance at the local level to the full implementation of the law? Um, There is, and then there's also the dilemma in terms of if women are economically dependent, then do you want to bring a complaint? What do you see? A lot of the time at the local level, women may want some form of mediation and some form of relief, but they wouldn't want the husband thrown in jail because then there goes their economic livelihood. So you you don't want that. So unless we provide those alternatives, then it's very difficult for victims of domestic violence to come up and then sort of go the full length if if that is their choice. So are you going to be following up on these countries, looking and seeing uh, what kind of impact the domestic violence law has had and how far there have been improvements in implementation? Yes, so we have a research undergoing on the second phase, which is actually looking at sort of informal institutions, what it means is informal norms and practices that affect not only the how the law is adopted, but also affects implementation. So part of it is looking at if you have sort of the 
correct procedures and measures in place? Do you have enough capacity of your frontline workers? Do you have services in place? So the infrastructures that you need, but part of it is also then how are people acting and why do they act the way they act? So yes, we are looking at that. And you're hopeful that things will improve (laughs) in terms of implementation. I work on women's rights. I have to be hopeful. (laughs) I think that's a good moment on which to end our discussion. Thank you, Diane. Thanks for listening. If you like this, then please subscribe and share. Follow us on Twitter at IDS underscore UK or visit IDS.ac.uk.